Good morning. I'm Sanaa, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Well, I have some exciting news for all of my listeners. Very special programming for this month. This month, I'm going to be joined by longtime podcaster and friend Dominic Lawson. And we're going to be diving into some of the episodes of his latest podcasting venture, Black is America. So Dominic, I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate the opportunity to share uh, Black is America with your audience. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know I'm a big fan of yours and a great big fan of Black is America podcast, and I thought, what better way to show how much I believe in you, believe in this show, than to share some of my airtime with you and this amazing podcast. But first, let me back it up a little bit because people don't, people may not know who you are. They should know who you are, but they may not. So we'll, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. All right. So Dominic Lawson is the creator and host of the Startup Life podcast, a podcast that had over 300 episodes. Let me, am I right on the number? Was it more than 300? That is correct. <laughs> Okay. It was a little bit more than 300. Okay. A little bit more than 300, but over 300 episodes and had some of the biggest founders of companies that you're very familiar with. I'm thinking here about the CEO of Netflix, as well as the founder of Paychex. So some heavy hitters on the show. This show was also syndicated uh, nationally and internationally. Okay. Yes. Let me say that again. Podcast syndicated nationally and internationally. Currently, Dominic is part of the Meadows Behavioral Healthcare Organization, where he serves as podcast producer, editor, and host. And if I'm not mistaken, there are two podcasts under this umbrella that you host, two award-winning podcasts, I should say. Is that correct? Let me make sure I'm getting all my facts right. There are two podcasts. Only one of them is award-winning. So we're we're working on the other one. We're working on the other one. Only one award. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'm slacking. I'm slacking, (laughs) So those are the Beyond Theory podcast that brings in-depth conversations with firsthand insights from the people on the front lines of mental health and addiction recovery. And then also Recovery Replay, which journals the personal stories of recovery. And now let's get to the show that we will be talking more about and that you all will be able to listen to that is the black is america podcast we're going to get into the motivations behind the podcast and a little bit more about it but i just want to go ahead and say you launched this podcast a year ago so last february 2022 already Mm -hmm. award-winning podcast so many awards communicator awards for writing for storytelling for hosting um for the documentary episode on lieutenant john fox also a W3 award, several awards for the series for best use of writing for the host 
and for the episode on Wendell Scott, and then also uh, Memphis Excellent Awards for Podcast of the Year. Okay, so listeners, you understand why I had to have this man and this show here on Let's Grab Coffee. Again, just thank you so much, Dominic. Thank you. Thank thank you for the opportunity. Uh, when, when you read off all those awards, I'm trying to like, who is she talking about? That ain't me. <laughs> it's so, you. <laughs> but no, I, I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Much. I, I, you know, Black, Black is America is, is important to me, and I, I really love the work, and it's important work. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it's just great to to see that people who uh, are listening to it and receiving it well. And so I, I really just wanted to kind of just educate people on some of the stories of people who look like me, and I think that was important. It is so important. And the way you do it, so expertly crafted. I mean, the awards really speak to that. And as we get to listen together to some of the shows, you know, everyone else will also understand exactly why you won those awards and why there are many more awards in your future. I said this to you before, um, and I believe it to be true. This is a legacy project. This is absolutely amazing. Um, the, The people that you're able to spotlight and tell their stories, but also the way that you do it, absolutely superb. Love it. Well, I, I appreciate that. You know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, when we started this project, it, it kind of got prompted from uh, me hearing from, you know, movie producers and Hollywood and stuff like that saying like, hey, every story that, that has been told has been told. And I was yeah. like, no, that's not true. <laughs> right. right? And, and so, but, but, but even uh, going deeper into that, like, you know, we've heard the story Now I want to give up the beans just yet about who we're going to focus on today. Uh, but we hear some of these stories uh, and I just feel like they should get the hero treatment. They should get this type of treatment, right? Like, you know, a lot of times when we hear these stories, it's just facts and mm-hmm. the dates. And it, 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 let's be honest, it's boring. And one of the things I've always believed uh, is that like history doesn't have to be boring. You, you mm-hmm. can you can tell jokes when you need to tell jokes, but you can also show reverence when you need to show reverence. And mm-hmm. I think that's something we've been able to connect with uh, when it comes to Black as America. And so when I, I remember us having that conversation and you saying it was a legacy project. You also said it was an award-winning one. Mm-hmm. So you, you spoke it in the life a lot. So now you really did. Uh, and, and so and I just took it and ran with it. So uh, thank you for speaking life into me and into the yeah. project because clearly uh, uh, that's definitely what has happened uh, in the past year for sure. And, and the crazy thing to me, and I'll land my plane here, is that like, when we started winning awards, we weren't even finished making season one just yet. <laughs> exactly. So that, that's that's crazy to me, but it just goes to show that clearly we we've hit a tone uh, with mm-hmm. the show, and people are being uh, very very responsive to it. Yes. And, and, you know, I think part of it is, like you said, we learn about, you know, facts, figures, events in history, and it's so boring. Like, it's just kind of here are the, the, the facts and that's it. But it's like these, like, tell us what was happening. Tell us, you know, about that moment. Tell us about, you know, what society was like at that time. Give us some more context so we understand who these people were, why this event was so significant. And to your point, the way that you do it in incorporating, you know, some some jokes, also making connections to present day and really making you know history come to life as folks like to say that's what I think people are responding to we really feel like we're there with these different um, people throughout history and we're experiencing or at least kind of understanding what they might have been thinking or, or, or doing or and and so that really brings even more depth 
to these folks who themselves led fascinating lives and did really amazing things, but being able to connect with it in the present day, I think is what makes it even more special. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you said that because I think sometimes when we, when we share history, uh, we have to just stick to the facts, stick to, you know, stick to the facts, ma'am, as a, a, a farmer's uh, show would say, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, you, you can you can do a little bit of, you know, uh, thinking about what they have been going through, like for John Fox, for instance, when he's in that tower, and he makes the call that he know is going to ultimately, you know, end his life in the tower. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is he going through? What's going through his mind? And obviously, we don't know exactly what's going through, but we can have an idea to, to your mm-hmm. point, it adds a little bit more depth to the character, but it also, at the same time, Sanaa, for the audience, it makes the audience be, feel more invested into the character. You're rooting for that character just a little bit more. And I'm seeing character like they're like a, a, a fictional person, but like these are real mm-hmm. people, right? Yes. And so you're invested in uh, uh, these people when you hear their stories. And that's what I want to bring to uh, uh, your audience this month, but also the broader audience to people who listen to Black is America, because I think that's important. And again, I, I can't stress this enough. History doesn't have to be boring. You can make it riveting. Uh, and and, and yes. I just wanted to make sure I showed that. Yeah. And and um, Dominic was referencing that first episode of Black is America with Lieutenant John Fox. And that one we won't be listening to together this month, but definitely go subscribe to Black is America podcast and listen to that show. And you'll get a feel for, for what we mean uh, of feeling even that suspense, right? You really set a scene where I'm like, oh my gosh, we're about to do it. Like we're about to <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I I have to share with this really quick story. When I when I was still working on the editing for John Fox and I let my wife listen to it, she was like, oh my God. And, and, and she was like, oh my God. Like, what have you created? In a good way, of course. Right, she right. Like, what have you created? So, and, and everybody loves that part of, of John Fox. But obviously, like Sanai said, please go listen to it on any of your podcast platforms for sure. Yes. And, you know, I think that brings up a good point too, because it's not just the storytelling, which of course you've written a really compelling story, right? Um, For all of these episodes of, you know, reaching out to other people, finding more facts, finding more historical context and, and writing a narrative that is very engaging, but it's also the entire production of it with all of the sound effects, with all of the, you know, other clips, um, whether it's from news stories or other voices, voices from people. And so I want to talk a little bit about the process as well, since I have you here. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about how you make those decisions around who you're going to talk to to kind of fill out this story, Um, even, you know, the sounds that you're going to use? Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So, you know, first, you know, if, if anybody's familiar with that NPR style, that NPR uh, background, if you will, you know, uh, that, that's kind of where it starts, right? Uh, because I, I think, you know, with that style of show that non, I think they call it the nonfiction narrative style, uh, you, you're able to really play around with sound design, you're able to really play around with storytelling. Uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, we always wanted to do was to bring that that depthness to each character, right? And so what I mm-hmm. do is I, 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 I start with at the end of this show, what do I want the audience to learn and what do I want them to feel? Mm-hmm. And then I work backwards from there, right? So every sound news clip is going to lead in that direction. Uh, for example, we were kind of talking about John Fox. So 
uh, one of the people I reached out to was a person who wrote a book about John mm -hmm. Fox, but she didn't have all the necessary information about the background of Cincinnati and where he's from. So I reached out to the National Underground Freedom Center in Cincinnati and found this historian there. Uh, and he knew all about, maybe he knew a little bit about John Fox, but he knew all about Cincinnati. So mm -hmm. while I don't know exactly how he grew up, I could at the very least kind of extrapolate from that information mm -hmm. what, you know, more than likely kind of how he grew up, stuff like that, and kind of piece it uh, together. Uh, and then one of the things you, you talked earlier about is connecting the past with the present. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, one of the things that, you know, when we're talking about, you know, Black history, this new uh, light on what's happened to Black people over the past couple of years uh, during COVID and things of that nature, uh, you know, statues coming down, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And I found a person who was talking about, hey, we should name, rename one of the uh, military facilities after John Fox. So that brings us in the present day. But at the end of it all, I want you to feel invested in John Fox. I want you to feel that John Fox is a freaking superhero. That's what I want <laughs> you to feel when this episode is done. I want you to feel like John Fox is a superhero. And I do that with all of my uh, people that mm -hmm. I'm highlighting or events that I'm highlighting. I want you to feel... Uh, that like this person is a rock star. This person is amazing. And so I have to do my best with storytelling, uh, writing, uh, storytelling, the writing, the sound design, especially the sound design. The sound design is key, right? You know, you can't just put music in the underbed. It's like, oh, that's award winning. No, it has to be intentional, uh, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I try my best to do that. But it all comes from starting what I want you as the audience to feel from this character and then backward plan, backwards plan from there. Mm -hmm. And it really comes through as a listener. I, like I said, I am right there with all of these different people. I am there going through whatever it is that they're going through. Um, it is as captivating as, you know, watching something on television, right? Because you have all the elements there. So I am, am, am you know, like shouting at the screen, right? Like, <laughs> uh, just yelling in my apartment or in the car like oh my goodness what's about to happen or don't do that you know and and that is the the a credit to your storytelling and to the sound design of the shows now how do you decide who or even what events that you want to kind of dive deeper into and create an episode around so uh, I'm glad you asked that because Black is America is my first endeavor into this type of show creation uh mm -hmm. and so one of the things that i love to do like we talked about backwards planning but also try to figure out uh the time of year that the episode is going to be released and then mm -hmm. something around that time right so uh for example in uh, in season one uh for memorial day there was mm -hmm. a fantastic you know history about black people charleston south carolina in the creation mm -hmm. of memorial day so you know uh so sometimes it's based on the time of year uh, but mm -hmm. also it, it could be just a situation of, uh, you know, maybe for sneak peek for season two. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things we want to highlight, people want to highlight is Barbara Jordan. Right. In March. And if I'm not mistaken, March 8th is International Women's Day because, you know, mm -hmm. March is International Women's Month. So we're going to release an episode about Barbara Jordan and uh, how she was a defender of democracy about her speech at the DNC, but also some of the testimony she gave uh, during the Nixon situation, right? And so mm -hmm. it, it, it really kind of just depends on, uh, you know, what I'm feeling, who I need to highlight, uh, time of year. It, it, it's a combination of things, but ultimately it's it's who I can really highlight in the best way possible uh, to, mm -hmm. to get that out. And sometimes it may just 
like, well, maybe it's not an episode, maybe it's a blog post. And so we'll just create a blog around it, right? So, because sometimes, unfortunately, there's just not enough information to create into an episode, right? And and, mm-hmm. and, and I hate that. Uh, but you know, and sometimes we do great with filling in with other, you know, uh, relative information and stuff like that. But sometimes it's just not enough. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we have sometimes have to make that decision as well, whether it be a full fe- a full feature episode, maybe a short episode, or maybe just a blog post. So there's three different elements that we can kind of go in that direction. Mm-hmm. I think the work you're doing is so important because one, you're educating folks about, again, important um, Black Americans throughout history who made major contributions and who just lived really interesting lives too, as well. And so I think that's important. But then also through the act of having this podcast, you are rewriting history as we're moving forward, because this will be a resource for people in the present day. So in you know this year, but then also a decade from now or two decades from now. So you're also very much contributing to that historical record. Um, And so I'm I'm absolutely, you know, in love with the show that isn't already appearance. (laughs) Um, But for today, and to kick off this month, uh, we are focusing on an episode about Tom Lee. Now, for Memphians who are listening, this name should sound very familiar. But for a lot of Memphians and, of course, folks around the country, around the world, you might not exactly know who Tom Lee is. Um, So could you talk a little bit about how you landed on Tom Lee as a person to focus on? You know, it's a fascinating question. And it it starts with the the notion that, like, it wasn't until a few years ago, I thought Tom Lee was white. Mm -hmm. You know, I I really did. And and it kind of comes off in the episode. But I, you know, again, this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. I feel like we have heard the story uh, of Tom Lee. Uh, you know, people have given beautiful renditions. You know, uh, Michael Finger, uh, who uh, we had used as a source for this episode, a uh, fantastic resource. But I wanted to give Tom Lee the hero treatment. I, mm-hmm. I, I really did. I wanted to give him that 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 treatment that we give a, a, a Bruce Willis and Die Hard or something like that, right? <laughs> I wanted to give him that type of treatment because... I wanted people uh, to see that, like, look, this person is is a hero, and I want them to feel him as a hero, see him as a hero, know him as a hero, respect him as a hero, right? Like we do Mm -hmm. action figures and people like a General uh, Patton or something like that, right? So I wanted to give him, uh, I wanted to give him his flowers in a way, with with a Memphis touch, of course, obviously with a Memphis touch, which uh, (laughs) you know, uh, which is always important for sure, Uh, but. Tom Lee, that that was such an exciting episode to work on. And I, I remember, uh, you know, it, it took me hours to find the right sound and, and sound mm-hmm. design. Like, I, you know, from the from the motorboat to the to the mm-hmm. uh, the the Emmy the Norman and stuff like that. So it, it was a fascinating thing. But I, I just wanted, really wanted Tom Lee to have that hero treatment like that was important to me. Mm -hmm. And you absolutely gave him the hero treatment. I'm so excited that we are going to kick off this Let's Grab Coffee and Black is America collaboration with this episode. Um, Y'all are in for such a treat. Uh, Right after the break, we're just going to jump right into it. I'm Sanaa, and this is Let's Grab Coffee. And this month, we are featuring episodes of Dominic Lawson's award-winning podcast, Black is America. It's May 8th, 1925, on the Mississippi River near Memphis, Tennessee. There are two steamboats, the Choctaw and the Emmy Norman, 
that are out on the water being used for sightseeing. On board are the attendees and the families of an engineering convention being held in the Bluff City. The voyage to their destination for the most part was uneventful. However, the same could not be said for the journey back. Also on the river today is Tom Lee, an African-American river worker returning from a nearby town, dropping off his employer. Upon his return, he passes by the Emmy Norman, and it appears a bit odd. That is because it's listing on the starboard side. Basically, it's taking on water and tilting towards the right side of the boat. Lee continues to pass by, but remains vigilant and keeps watch over his shoulder. But moments later, the worst happens. The Emmy Norman, with its 72 passengers and crew, capsizes. There are men, women, and children in the water trying their best to stay afloat. Lee springs into action. He fires up the engine on his boat, turns it around, and heads towards the Emmy Norman. Adrenaline is running high for the 40-year-old river worker, and the fact that he cannot swim only increases the degree of difficulty. But it was C.S. Lewis that said, quote, Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. Tom Lee may not have everything he needs for a proper rescue, but nevertheless, he is heading towards the danger. Not for honor, not for glory, but quite simply because it's the right thing to do. We come from innovators, heroes, and royalty. We are our ancestors' greatest hope. We face many challenges, but we mold that adversity into our greatest strength. We are the glue that holds a nation together and allows it to flourish. Welcome to Black is America, the podcast that highlights little-known African-American figures and stories that make our history come to life. I'm your host, Dominic Lawson, Episode 8, Tom Lee, the Everyday American Hero. I am a native of Memphis, Tennessee. It's home to many great things, great music, great food, and great people. It is also home to an event that encompasses all three of those things. Memphis in May is a month-long event celebrating not just Memphis, but also we get to learn more about a foreign country. In 2022, we learned more about the African nation, Ghana. Now, during this month-long celebration is the Bill Street Music Festival and the World Championship Barbecue Contest, because down here in Memphis, we are the kings in barbecue. Don't at me. It's the truth. It's a fact moving right along. <laughs> Fun fact, the first world champion was a black woman named Bessie Louise Cathy when she put down her $12 for the entry fee and came home with the $500 first prize. Go ahead, auntie. Now, as a kid here in the Bluff City, I loved this time of year because the month of May meant school was almost out and Memphis and May always had an offshoot of activities for kids of some sort. But the thing I really loved was the Sunset Symphony. In particular, the singing of Mr. James Heiter singing Old Man River. Let me tell you, I thought this man was the voice of God when I heard him sing. 
Let me show you what I mean. Courtesy of WREG Memphis is James Heiter giving his very last performance of this amazing song. in Memphis loved this rendition of Old Man River, so much so that they would almost always ask for an encore. My dad told me one time that Uncle James sang this song seven straight times. If you're not familiar, Old Man River is a show tune from the 1927 musical Showboat, with music by Jerome Kerr and lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II. The song contrasts the struggles and hardships of the point of view of a black stevedore on a showboat and is the most famous song from the show. Famous American bass baritone Paul Robeson's version of this iconic song was inducted to the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2006. But this song fittingly leads us to our story today because almost all of these events for Memphis and May revolve around or at Tom Lee Park after Tom Lee. Full transparency though, while I was born and raised in Memphis, I did not know Tom Lee was a black man until about 10 years ago. I naturally assumed he was white. But I'm not the only one who didn't know much about Tom Lee. First time I heard about Tom Lee, of course, was going downtown to the park. So I was like, who is Tom Lee? And then, you know, mom and daddy didn't know too much. Once again, here is Terry Stevens, educator and historian. And like this host, she is also a native of Memphis, Tennessee. But also like this host, she didn't know much about Tom Lee until she was older. But they said they got a park after him. And as a, I don't remember how old I was, but we were always going to Tom Lee Park, Tom Lee Park. So as I got older... And I started wanting to know more. Uh, they had at one point they had the monument downtown. It said, which quoted, and it was sit, put up by Crump. Of course, you know if you know anything about Boss Crump and that time period, it was a highly segregated time period. It said he was a worthy Negro. A worthy what? You know, I'm not even tripping because later on in this story you'll see that you know God don't like ugly. A worthy Negro, I tell you the truth. Anyway, let's go back to Terry. And he found out because I was talking to my grandmama, Ruby Lee. <laughs> she said, Oh, he was a black man that saved all these people. Oh, that makes sense. So it was at that point as a as a child, just first time I heard about him was at 
going to the park. Had no idea until just looking at, listening to and talking to my elders, my grandmama, you know, my mom and dad didn't know much. A black man that saved a lot of people. I tell you, I would have loved to have learned more about this heroic Memphian. But how come I haven't? How come Terry didn't? And why did I think he was a white man? Well, kids, that is how white supremacy works. And to explain, we need to hop in the car for a bit of a Memphis geography lesson. We need to go down the street first. Because see, not far from Tom Lee Park on Riverside Drive is Fourth Bluff Park, a place I used to go quite often when my mom had to run errands in downtown Memphis. But as a kid, it was called Confederate Park with a statue of Jefferson Davis. You know, the successionist in chief. And by that, I mean he served as president of the Confederate States. He lived in Memphis for a time. I can tell you that the statue and its base has been since taken down. Thanks to Take Him Down 901. Appreciate y'all. And just north of us is Odell Horton Federal Courthouse. Its namesake comes from the African-American Marine Corps veteran and later judge who President Jimmy Carter nominated in 1980 to serve as the judge of the District Court of West Tennessee. He was confirmed by the Senate of the same year. But that is today. When Terry and I were growing up, however, it was called the Clifford Davis Federal Building, named after the judge and congressman who was a signatory on the Southern Manifesto a document that was in response to the Brown versus the Board of Education ruling that opposed the desegregation of schools. He also was a leader in the Ku Klux Klan. And that reminds me, because speaking of bedsheet-wearing equestrians, let's hop back into the car and head east on Union Avenue. I need to take you to another park that's about a mile east of here. Hold on for a second. Looks like we're coming to a red light at the intersection of Union Avenue and Marshall Avenue. Hey, check it out. So if you look over to the left on 706 Union Avenue is the world famous Sun Studios. It is considered by many to be the birthplace of rock and roll. Some of your favorite pioneers of the genre, we're talking Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, and Jerry Lee Lewis all recorded there. But what you may not know is that the African-American songwriter Otis Blackwell was responsible for the hits such as Presley's All Shook Up and Lewis's Great Balls of Fire. Okay, check it out. So it all started at the Apollo Theater, right, in Harlem, where Otis entered this songwriting contest in 1952, right? And then, you know what? I'm sorry. The light just turned green. My bad. Looks like we have to say that story for another time. But, you know, we do have other business to attend to. And so as we go up another quarter mile, we pull up to Health Sciences Park. But before 2013, it was called Forest Park, after the slave trade, slave-owning, money-swindling Confederate general and Grand Wizard of Ku Klux Klan, Nathan Bedford Forrest. There is also a statue of him as well atop a horse looking all air quotes brave with his Confederate outfit on. Now, if it sounds like I'm throwing shade at Nathan Bedford Forrest, it's because I am. See, I have a long-running beef with Nathan Bedford Forrest because so many people like to hold him up as a person of prestige and renown. And as we say in Memphis, man, please. For starters, let's talk about that war record everybody tries to tout, right? 
while he may have been somewhat of a decent war tactician for someone who didn't have any formal military training, a hero he was not. I am reminded of his actions at Fort Pillow. If you're not familiar, on April 12, 1864, Forrest and his men forced the surrender of about 600 Union soldiers. But instead of taking them as prisoners of war, or POWs, 300 of them were massacred. Many of them were black soldiers. This account was confirmed by both Union and Confederate soldiers. That doesn't sound like hero energy to me. Then after the war, many in the white Memphis community were also not fans of Naughty Nate due to his shady business dealings. He would default on debts, and when he became the president of a railroad company, it went bankrupt. And lastly, many devotees of Naughty Nate will say, well, Dominic, he became an advocate of African-Americans later in life. He was one of the South's first civil rights leaders. I can't believe they actually said that shit. Now, while that is a bit of a stretch, and to be honest, there is a bit of truth to it, and I do mean a bit, for one, he did give speeches during his period advocating for the economic improvement of black people and racial equality. When four black men were murdered by a lynch mob, Forrest condemned the action and wrote the governor of Tennessee, John C. Brown at the time, and quote, volunteered to help exterminate those men responsible for the continued violence against the blacks, end quote, offering, quote, to exterminate the white marauders who disgraced their race by this cowardly murder, end quote. And y'all, you're not even going to believe this one. Check this out. Nathan Bedford Forrest, and I am not making this up, even came to the cookout, y'all. He was trying hard to get the ally badge. I'll tell you why in a little bit. See, a few months before his death, Forrest went to a barbecue with black people on the 4th of July, where he gave a speech urging African-Americans to, quote, work, be industrious, and live honestly and act truly, end quote, as well as declaring that, quote, when you are oppressed, I'll come to your relief. Many of these actions appear admirable on the surface, but they are suspect by this host. Why, you ask? Well, many of these actions advocating for black people happened throughout the 1870s until his death in 1877. But I don't think these actions were as gracious as people like to make it out to be. Let's go back in the timeline for a bit. The 15th Amendment was passed in 1869 and ratified in 1870, giving African-Americans the right to vote. But President Grant and many in Congress knew that certain people, <clears throat> the South, were not going to do right. So the Enforcement Acts were passed in 1871 to protect registration, voting, office holding, and jury service of African-Americans. But it also came with 5,000 indictments and 1,000 convictions of Klan members. Hmm, who was it again that was voted the first Grand Wizard of the Klan between 1867 and 1869? I wonder. Which brings me to June 27, 1871, when Faulty Forrest was before a congressional hearing to testify on the Ku Klux Klan activities. I'm guessing he was trying to get some of the heat off of him because he denied any membership he had of the Klan. My guy straight up denied membership. George Cantor, a biographer of Confederate generals, wrote, quote, 
Forrest ducked and weaved, denying all knowledge, but admitted he knew some of the people involved. He sidestepped some questions and pleaded failure of memory on others. Afterwards, he admitted to gentlemanly lies. He wanted nothing more to do with the Klan, but felt honor-bound to protect former associates. So look, when I think of congressional hearings and convictions, I can see why Forrest was out here giving speeches, kissing babies, and in black churches singing Negro spirituals trying to probably avoid fed time if you ask this host. Which is why as far as this host is concerned, give me a second here to grab my little stamp. This application for allyship is hereby denied based on the grounds that not only were his efforts more performative than operational, but also that the negatives on this application, like the slave trading, actions at Fort Pillow, and others are extremely objectionable. So no, I do not hold Nathan Bedford Forrest in the same light as, say, John Brown, a known abolitionist who was about that action to do away with the atrocity of slavery and not profiting from it like Nathan Bedford Forrest. So that is why I did not know Tom Lee was a black man. When you grew up in Memphis like I did in the 80s and 90s and you only saw buildings and statues named and made after white men, you would only assume that anything down there would be white. Unfortunately, there is not much known personally about Tom Lee before his heroic actions. As I said at the top of the show, however, Lee was a river worker. He was not a skilled laborer, so for his employer, C.W. Hunter, he would often just do a variety of jobs. So on this spring day on May 8, 1925, his job was to take his employer down to Helena, Arkansas, about 70 miles southwest of Memphis. This is probably one of the most dangerous jobs Tom performs for his employer, due in large part to the fact that he cannot swim. And there is probably good reason for that. But for now, let's leave Tom to his work. Tom is not the only one who doesn't know how to swim. There are generations of black people who do not know how. And there is a good explanation for that. If you remember in our episode on Ledger Smith, we discussed the move to desegregate places of leisure. Swimming pools were a part of that movement. I am reminded of what happened on June 18, 1964, when civil rights protesters entered a pool at the Monsoon Motor Lodge, where James Brock poured acid into the pool. Fortunately, no one was hurt, but once again, those images were seen around the world. And it would be because of events like these and segregated pools that generations of black people will never learn how to swim. A lot of black people, because of the limited access to pools, because of the segregation, didn't learn how to swim. Now, in certain areas of the country, especially if you're along a beach or the coast, it was uh, required that they learn how to swim. But like you said, a lot of people here in Memphis, even today, don't know how to swim. I was fortunate to have learned how to swim at a young age. My sisters would tell you they know how not to drown. Even um, in the 70s and 80s, it was very few black kids learning how to swim. I took swimming lessons at Gooch Park, at Gooch Pool in North Memphis in Hyde Park. You would think it would be a lot of kids that tried to learn how to swim, but there may have been about 15 or 20 of us. But when the pool was just open for free play, it was full. 
it wasn't so much of a necessity for us because foods were limited in the black community. But now we have so much easy access to foods. Say it's important for us to learn how to swim. Terry is right. It is very important for us to know how to swim. According to a study commissioned by the USA Swimming Foundation, conducted by the researchers at the University of Memphis, 64% of black children do not know how to swim compared to 40% of white children. Also, black children are six times more likely to drown in a swimming pool than white children are, and it all traces back to segregated pools. But there is hope. And it comes in the form of a pair of Olympic champions of color. I want my platform to to be kind of like a tiger or, or Serena and Venus or Jackie Robinson, where it's it's OK to do this sport. It's OK. There were people before me, mind you, there were a ton of people before me, but I was blessed enough to be a part of a relay that the world saw. This is Cullen Jones, a former African-American competitive swimmer and four time Olympic medalist. He is the only African-American to hold a world record in the sport. And he is talking about the work he is doing to reverse the minority swimming gap in the United States. I've been working with an initiative called Make a Splash for 13 years after I got my gold, first gold medal in 2008. And um, that was the focus is to try to never have a parent go through what my mom went through of me almost drowning and then having to make that change because we see. Um, especially in the black community, parents that have that issue with water or a negative experience around water tend to project that onto their children. And then there is another Olympic champion. But I need to take you to 2016 Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, because the women's 100 meter freestyle final is about to begin. Back here for the last final of the night as we set the lanes. So it's Simone Manuel is an African-American swimmer that is about to compete for a medal. Simone is unique for an elite swimmer. It almost kind of mirrors the African-American experience in the United States. What I mean is, is that she doesn't always get off to the best start in her races, but she is a superior closer. Watch out, because history is about to be made. Simone Manuel is above her trying to fight. Hall of Fame swimmer and color commentator Rowdy Gaines gives some perspective on just how important Simone Manuel's win means to USA Swimming. And for so many reasons, certainly personal, this goal means so much, but it means so much more for our sport. I can't begin to tell you what this means for the sport of swimming in the United States. As we get back to Lee, he is heading towards Memphis. His trip to Helena goes without incident. However, on the way back, there's a bit of an issue. See, the motor on Tom's boat, the Zev, begins to malfunction. He would have to let his boat drift back to the dock and work on it. It's important that he does. It's one thing that Tom cannot swim, but it's another to be at the absolute mercy of the Mississippi River. Let's leave Tom to work on his motor. 
Now, miles up the river is the Emmy Norman steamboat. On this sunny Friday, the Norman was paired with the Choctaw and taken about 150 delegates and their families of an engineering convention to Pickney Landing, about 20 miles south of Memphis. Both vessels belong to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The Norman was fairly new, being less than a year old. Before May 8th, there were some improved modifications done, which included going away from a coal-burning system to an oil system to improve efficiency. However, May 8th would be the Norman's first voyage since those modifications. Now, the Norman is captained by Howard Fenton, a seasoned riverman with almost 40 years of experience. However, today marks the first time he has been the captain of the Norman. Another item of note, remember there are about 150 people that went down to Pickney Landing on the Norman and on the Choctaw. The riders were virtually split in half between the two boats. So as the Norman and the Choctaw head back up the Mississippi River towards Memphis, it would be the Norman that starts to experience complications. The Choctaw and his passengers pulls further ahead, unaware of the Norman's troubles. And those complications were not only adding up, but the passengers were starting to experience them. The boat is unsteady, so much so that the water is starting to splash up on the deck and getting passengers' feet wet. The Norman is starting to list on the starboard side. Once again, if you're not familiar, it's leaning towards the right side. Captain Fenton is not overly concerned as he knew sometimes the current would cause this and it would self-correct. But on this day on May 8th, it is not self-correcting. So Captain Fenton asked the passengers to go to the other side of the boat in an effort to level the vessel. The move only works temporarily and the Norman begins to list even more. The passengers are now panicking because they are unable to keep their footing. Things are dire for the Emmy Norman. Captain Fenton knows it. While initially Captain Fenton was not overly concerned, someone else was troubled by what he was seeing. Tom Lee, after working on his motor of the Zev for about an hour, would head back out into the water, heading upstream, and eventually brings up the rear of the Norman. He is watching the difficulties the boat is having. He would later say, quote, it was riding serious, end quote. So while he does zip past the Norman, he turns off the motor of the Zev and decided to just keep watch over his shoulder just to be safe. This is something that is interesting about us as a people. There's a level of intuition that something is about to happen. Sometimes it's a good event, but often, given the African-American experience, it's a bad one. Maybe it is due to what we have gone through as a people. Some have said it's divinely inspired. But it was Oprah Winfrey who said, quote, follow your instincts. That's where true wisdom manifests itself. And it would be that wisdom that saved many lives on that spring day in 1925. A few of the passengers start to don life preservers, but Captain Fenton knew the fate of the Emmy Norman. The best he could hope for was to get the boat over to the shore to prevent a catastrophic event taking place. So he heels the wheel over desperately trying to get to shore, but he was too late. 
the rudder fails, and the boat was caught crossways into the current. Suddenly, a powerful current hits the hull and completely lifts the port side out of the water. Within seconds, the Norman capsizes, and many of the passengers and crew are at the mercy of the mighty Mississippi River. Some are actually trapped in the main cabin of the boat. Everyone is trying their best to grab something to help them stay afloat. Tables, chairs. Some managed to even get onto the boat's hull. Many tried to swim to shore, but unfortunately, they were not successful. As I said before, the Mississippi River is a powerful body of water. The currents are so strong and the water can get really cold. And remember, this is 1925. So think about the style of clothing. Heavy and damp clothing can really wear you down and force you to exert more energy as you try to save yourself or try to save other people. Captain Fenton himself is in the water trying to survive. He managed to leap through a pilot house window in an effort to not get trapped. The Norman would eventually sink to the bottom of the Mississippi. He manages to dog paddle over to a few life preservers, but the exertion gets to him. He is barely able to keep his head above water. Seconds before Captain Fenton is about to share the same fate as the Norman, somebody grabs him. Is Tom Lee. Lee has finally made it to the site where the Norman went down, and he is pulling survivors into the Zev and taking them to shore. He puts Captain Fenton into the Zev and also takes him to shore. Then Lee goes back out into the water to rescue more survivors. One man tried to swim the shore, but the current kept pushing him away. Then the man manages to use his tie to tether himself to a willow. His quick thinking allowed for Lee to get other survivors who were not in such a stable condition, and Lee was able to pick him up in the Zev and take him to shore. Also, a 24-year-old Memphis socialite, Margaret Oates, was able to use her parasol to trap air underneath to stay afloat for Tom to come and rescue her later in the Zev. Tom makes four trips back and forth and eventually he saves 32 people from the capsizing of the Emmy Norman. This is almost half of the passengers. And while Tom was courageous in bringing them to shore, his next action would help ensure their survival. If you had just survived being in the waters of the Mississippi, then hypothermia would be your next issue. And with being in shock and in very damp clothes and probably really cold, you're probably just thankful to be alive. So Lee would gather some driftwood and build a fire to keep the survivors as warm as possible until proper medical attention could arrive. And then what does Lee do after he finishes? 
he goes back into the river in an effort to find more survivors. By the afternoon, the city of Memphis is alerted to what happened. Many people, newspaper reporters, police, doctors, all greet the riders of the Choctaw, the other steamer paired with the Norman that day. The riders of the Choctaw are shocked, as this is the first time they are hearing of the events. Mayor Rollett Payne and others board the Choctaw and head back downstream to see the wreckage and bring back the survivors of the Norman. When they arrive, they pick up the survivors and they are told about the mysterious black man that saved him. However, Tom is nowhere to be found. That is because, into the night, Tom is still out on the river looking for survivors. Eventually, they would catch up to Tom Lee to find this modest and humble man. Obviously, he is deemed a hero. One man said, quote, We all owe our lives to Tom Lee. There's all there is to it. When asked about his actions, Tom responded, quote, I guess I didn't do anything more than anyone else would have done in my place. The citizens of Memphis wholeheartedly disagreed. Longtime newspaper The Commercial Appeal said he should be awarded the Carnegie Medal of Heroism. The now defunct Memphis Press Scimitar said, quote, We do not know what the rule of government is about giving pensions to civilians, but if there is no rule against it, Tom should be made comfortable for life. And the citizens of Memphis would make sure that happened. You have to know that some of the people he saved were some of the elites in Memphis, or they were friends of the elites. A Memphis jeweler would present him with a gold watch. And Tom Lee is also afforded a trip to Washington, D.C. to meet President Calvin Coolidge. Now, eventually, as Tom is asked himself what he wanted, and Tom said, I need a house. So the people of Memphis got together and donated the money to buy him a house. At 923 North Mansfield Street here in Memphis, his house is still there, but it's in disrepair these days. And that riverman work he was doing? Nah, he was done with all that. He was given a job in the sanitation department, which was not as dangerous. And when he was granted early retirement, he received double the pension. Yeah, Memphis really took care of him. He was even sent a Christmas card and $50 every year until he succumbed to cancer on April 1st, 1952. He was 67 years old. After his death, Asta Park, which sits at the foot of the world-famous Bill Street and right next to the Mississippi River, was renamed as Tom Lee Park. This move was even endorsed by E.H. Crump, or Boss Crump, as we call him here in Memphis. He was mayor for a term, but he effectively picked the mayor of Memphis for almost half a century. Terry says that Tom Lee's actions must have been very commendable to get the endorsement of Boss Crump. To even have recognized a black man during that particular time, 
late 1800s, early 1900s was something unheard of. But he recognized it. He recognized Tom Lee because of what he did. For a white man to do that at that time, he had a pool named after him over at Carnes Elementary. There was a pool that was named after him. And what's crazy is they said for somebody that couldn't swim to have a pool named after him was ironic. To have someone like Bala Crump, Mayor Crump, to recognize a black man. And if you look at his background, that speaks volumes about Tom Lee in itself. And at the new Tom Lee Park, an obelisk I mentioned earlier with the inscription, a worthy Negro would be erected there. But in 2003, due to the storm of Hurricane Elvis, it would be knocked over and <laughs> destroyed. Oops. See, I told you God don't like ugly. A new and beautiful monument has since been created that is far more honorable and befitting of a hero like Tom Lee. And to this day, it still sits on the park that bears his name. Also, interestingly, Tom Lee is also possibly responsible for another famous Memphis landmark. The Dixon Gallery and Gardens is a Memphis staple with art exhibitions and a beautiful place to have a wedding. The 17-acre campus is enjoyed by many that come from all over the region. It was donated by the Dixons, Hugh and Margaret. If that name sounds familiar, that is because Margaret Oates Dixon was the 24-year-old parasol floater who was saved by Tom Lee on that fateful day. Quite possibly, if Tom doesn't save her, we may not have this national treasure sitting in our backyard now. That's the beauty of history. It's almost impossible to be disconnected from it. The legacy of Tom Lee is part of a long legacy of black America that is filled with everyday people saving lives. Back in 2018, 300 miles east of Memphis in Nashville, James Shaw Jr. stopped a gunman in Waffle House and from killing more people. He ran up to the shooter and grabbed the barrel of his assault rifle and wrestled it away from him. How about August 7th, 1982 at Fenway Park in Boston? A foul ball hits a four-year-old Jonathan Keene in the forehead. Seconds later, Future Hall of Famer Jim Rice jumps up from the dugout, grabs Jonathan from the stands, and takes him into the clubhouse so that the team doctor could do what he could until he could be transferred over to Boston Children's Hospital. Jim then goes back to finish the game with Jonathan's blood on his uniform. In the post-game press conference, he said that he moved quickly because getting him to the team doctor was faster than waiting for medical help to arrive to the stadium. And when he was labeled a hero, Jim simply said, if that was your son, what would you do? And let us not forget the actions of Eugene Goodman on January 6, 2021, who steered insurrectionists on the different path so that members of Congress could get away safely. I hope this season of Black is America has shown you that history is not just a collection of stories from the past. They are reminders of the indomitable spirit we have as a people. They tell us the greatness and excellence it's not just something we inherited, but it's encoded in our DNA. And it is for that reason we have the story of Tom Lee, who did not ask permission to do the right thing. He simply did. The humble Memphian may not have been a person of the societal elite or have a fancy title, but he shows us that being a decent human being and the willingness to help people when they are in dire need transcends any bank account figure level of education, 
or any marginalization one may face. And that is why Tom Lee is an everyday American hero. The Black is America podcast, a presentation of Owl's Education, was created and is written, researched, and produced by me, Dominic Lawson. Executive producer, Kendall Lawson. Cover art was created by Alexandria Eddings of Art Life Connections. 